This is an ICU study. They can become hypotensive. Indiscriminate use of fluids is not necessary. We are resuscitating patients at a different stage of their illness. You either got it or you didn't. It didn't affect the risk of cardiovascular collapse. What's actually going on with our patients? Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. This is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. Thanks for joining us on this podcast. We are going to get into some more literature pertaining to a topic very pertinent to rapid sequence intubation, and that is the prevention of cardiovascular collapse during RSI or during induction and subsequent laryngoscopy. But before jumping into a review of this podcast educational topic, let me bring in my two co-hosts for this podcast, Dr. Peter W. and Dr. John Greenwood. Dr. Rodriguez is working a string of clinical shifts, so he is going to circle back with us and join us for our next podcast. But Peter, let me find out how you're doing. So doing well, doing well. New Orleans is hot, steamy, rainy, humid, perfect weather for the city, perfect weather for the city. A good time to listen to some music and get your food on. Well, I mentioned this during our last podcast. Every time I go to you to see how you're doing, there's another festival. Is there a festival ongoing in New Orleans, this podcast recording? This podcast recording, there is probably a shrimp festival going on right now with one of the oldest fishing rodeos in the country, the Grand Isle Fishing Rodeo. There you go. I knew something had to be afoot in New Orleans. Well, John, how are things up in Philly? Any festivals, fun summer activities? How are things going? Things are going great. It's now August 1st. So we've made it through the first month of the academic year successfully. (laughs) And I'll be honest, it's always a lot of fun meeting the new residents and interns. And I know we say this often, but they're quite an impressive group. I usually come in with a low bar. And to see these men and women come in and take on really challenging clinical environments, a lot of fun, and they've done an excellent job so far. So that's been exciting. And just as a exciting thing I found out today, I was invited to give a research talk in Paris in October. I'll be speaking at the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine. So exciting news from overseas as well. Outstanding. Congratulations, John. That is great. Great, great. Well, let's turn our attention, John. You mentioned we've made it beyond the first month here. And I happened to be working clinically in the emergency department over the weekend. And one of our new residents, she happened to just mention that during her first week, she had already got three endotracheal intubations, three RSIs. And it made me just think about the topic we were going to discuss this evening, record for this particular podcast, and it pertains to rapid sequence intubation. And now when we talk about critically ill adults in the United States, about 2 million of them undergo intubation each year. And if we just focus on those in the intensive care unit, needing endotracheal intubation, we were very familiar with potential cardiovascular collapse from a variety of reasons that during RSI, patients can drop their blood pressure, they can become hypotensive or actually have a peri-intubation cardiac arrest. So to that end, what we're going to review during this particular podcast is the recently published PREPARE2 trial. This was just published about five, maybe six weeks ago online in JAMA. Lead author is Dr. Russell, and it is titled, The Effect of Fluid Bolus Administration on Cardiovascular Collapse Among Critically Ill Patients Undergoing Tracheal Intubation. 
intubation. And when I talk about peri-intubation cardiovascular collapse or peri-intubation cardiac arrest, we think that it may result from a culmination of things. So we are providing medications that result in vasodilatation. We are also instituting positive pressure ventilation that may also decrease venous return and in select critically ill patients predispose them to this peri-intubation cardiovascular collapse. Now, when we look at guidelines and even expert recommendations, what we teach at the bedside in the ED and in the ICU, well, that's in patients who are at risk of cardiovascular collapse. Well, let's give them fluids. Administer a fluid bolus with the intent of preventing cardiovascular collapse during RSI. And right now, while the literature would say up to about 50% of patients undergoing emergency intubations do get that fluid bolus. Now, you may recall if you're longtime listeners here to CCPEM, we reviewed PREPARE1, and that was a randomized trial that took a look at the same amount of fluid that we're going to discuss momentarily, looking at whether that actually prevented a composite outcome in patients undergoing emergency intubation. And at the end of the day, it didn't. It didn't affect the risk of cardiovascular collapse. But in a subgroup, there was suggested benefit of that fluid bolus, specifically in patients who were receiving either bag valve mask ventilation or non-invasive ventilation during the intubation and induction period. So the whole objective of this particular article, this study, was to really examine the effect of that IV fluid bolus on cardiovascular collapse among these critically ill patients getting intubated, but doing so while receiving positive pressure ventilation. So having said all that, Dr. W., I'm going to turn to you. Take us through the methods. Tell us specifically who was included, where did this occur, what was the intervention. Tell us the methods of the PREPARE2 trial. You got it, Mike. So it's a well-designed study. So we're looking at a multi-center, parallel group, unblinded, pragmatic, randomized control trial. This involved 11 ICUs across the U.S. Now, what about the patients who were included? So the patients that were included for this study were adults age 18 years or older, those who were undergoing tracheal intubation, so RSI, they were to receive medications to induce anesthesia and then positive pressure ventilation with either bag valve mask or non-invasive ventilation between the induction time and laryngoscopy. So who's excluded? So very few. Pregnant patients were excluded, incarcerated patients were excluded, and those that had an immediate need for intubation that precluded any type of randomization. So really what involved the intervention here? So patients were randomized in a one-to-one ratio to receive an IV fluid bolus or not receive the IV fluid bolus. You either got it or you didn't. The fluid bolus group, what did that look like? The operators were instructed to infuse 500 cc's of isotonic crystalloid of their choice. They infused as much as possible before induction and then administer any of the remaining amount after induction and during the intubation. So in the group who didn't receive fluids, so the no fluid bolus group, what did that look like? Initiation of a new IV fluid bolus was not permitted except as a treatment for frank hypotension or if the operator determined that IV fluids were necessary. All other aspects of the intubation were left to the operator. Their choice of induction agent, operator dependent. 
their use of vasopressors, operator dependent. So let's look at the primary outcome. So the first is cardiovascular collapse. They defined it as one or more of the following, either a new or increased receipt of vasopressors before induction and two minutes after intubation. It can also be a systolic blood pressure of less than 65 millimeters of mercury between induction and two minutes after intubation. I wanna emphasize, this is not mean arterial blood pressure of 65, this is a systolic blood pressure of 65. Also cardiac arrest between induction and one hour after intubation. And then lastly, death between induction and one hour after intubation. So those were their definition of cardiovascular collapse. The secondary outcomes, death prior to day 28, so they followed them out, and then also sample size calculation. They determined that an enrollment of 750 participants would provide 80% power to detect between group absolute difference of 8.75%, a relative risk difference of 35%. And then during an interim analysis, the observed incidence of cardiovascular collapse was lower than expected. Thus, sample size was increased all the way to 1,065 patients. So now I think it's time to move on to the results. All right, Peter, that was great. Thanks for taking us through the methods that helps us quite a bit understanding who was enrolled and really what they were looking at from a composite outcome. So Dr. Greenwood, what's the take-home message? Take us through what these authors found. Yeah, so it's funny how that always happens. The incidence of the outcome of interest always seems to be lower compared to that preliminary data. So in total, 1,065 patients were included in the primary analysis here. This was pretty balanced here. The fluid group was about 538. The no fluid group was 527. So pretty even split between the two experimental and control group. Patient characteristics were also pretty well balanced. So the median age was 62 years and 42% of these patients were women. Approximately 60% of patients in both groups, the fluid and non-fluid group, had sepsis or septic shock as a diagnosis. Acute respiratory failure with hypoxia was the most common indication for intubation here. So it was a pretty even well-balanced group that actually is pretty common, I think, to what we see in the emergency department. Now, as far as those who received fluids, the fluid bolus group, 99.4% of these patients received the bolus. So it wasn't like they were randomized to an arm and didn't receive fluids. Everyone who was assigned pretty much received fluids. And a majority of the bolus was administered prior to RSI. And the median volume here was about half a liter, so 500 milliliters of fluid. In the no fluid bolus group, they did a good job sticking to the assignment. So about 1% of patients received a fluid bolus out of the 527 patients in the non-fluid bolus group. Now, as far as intubation goes, the approach to pre-oxygenation, choice of induction agents, systolic blood pressure, and peripheral saturation at induction were not different at all between the two groups themselves. About 12% of patients in both groups had a vasopressor bolus or an infusion administered between enrollment and 
RSI, and approximately 98% of patients in both groups received positive pressure ventilation between induction and laryngoscopy. So that's between getting drugs and actually a laryngoscopy procedure. Now, as far as the primary outcome of cardiovascular collapse, as Peter nicely defined for us, 21% of patients in the fluid bolus group met one of the composite outcomes for cardiovascular collapse and compare that to 18% in the no fluid bolus group. So the difference between these two groups was not statistically significant and overall no different whatsoever. The fluid bolus did not decrease the incidence of cardiovascular collapse in any of the pre-specified subgroups, and that was based on the Apache 2 score, presence of sepsis, or receiving vasopressors or not. As far as secondary or exploratory outcomes, death at 28 days, once again, there was no difference between the fluid bolus group and the non-fluid bolus group. And finally, the incidence of each component of the composite outcome differ significantly between groups. And, you know, sometimes we'll see this in these composite outcomes. There'll be one outcome that drives the composite outcome overall. So it's nice that they pointed this out, that there wasn't a difference between any of the groups that they used to define cardiovascular collapse. John, that was outstanding. Thanks to you and Peter for taking us through the methods and now really the results of what their PREPARE-2 trial showed in over 1,000 or almost 1,100 patients needing intubation. Well, let me hit on some of the author-identified limitations here, and then I want to get your take-home points as to how you incorporate the PREPARE-2 trial into your clinical or bedside practice in the ICU. John, you already mentioned kind of the main take-home is that the primary outcome was a composite outcome. And we've reviewed several studies here over the years on CCPEM where there's been a statistical significant difference in a composite outcome, but at the end of the day, when you parse that out, it's not the mortality component that is driving that change in composite outcome. So use of a composite outcome. The authors also identified the use of that fluid bolus. In other words, they gave 500 mLs. Hard to say why they settled on just 500. Would that outcome have been different if they'd used a liter? or maybe a little bit more. So they did highlight the use of just 500 mLs during the time of induction to laryngoscopy. And then in terms of overall using or looking at this fluid bolus, they didn't really look at those that were overtly hypotensive going into intubation. And so that is often many of our patients in the emergency department, they're hemodynamically unstable, they're marginal BPs. Those weren't the patients necessarily included here whereby we would be giving fluids. So at the end, the authors state, you know, well, among critically ill adult patients undergoing intubations, importantly in the ICU, giving 500 mLs of an isotonic crystalloid didn't decrease the incidence of cardiovascular collapse. So I'm going to go back to you, John, first. Do we take this to mean that, well, let's look at this patient, we're going to do induction, we're going to do RSI, no need to really hang fluids because it actually doesn't decrease the incidence of whether that patient's going to develop post-intubation hypotension or cardiovascular collapse. Yeah. So my takeaway is pretty superficial here because I think this is a pretty superficial trial and basically indiscriminate administration of fluids isn't necessary in these critically ill patients requiring intubation. And I think this is something we talk about a lot in terms of figuring out 
what's actually going on with our patients in terms of the hemodynamics and being thoughtful about doing things like maybe an early ultrasound to understand cardiac function or approaching your physical exam to determine hypovolemia. These are all things that the clinical nuance that help guide our therapies to help reverse some of the pathophysiology that we see in the ED. So I think this was a formative trial. These thousand patient trials aren't easy to do. So congratulations to the authors for pulling this off. But I think it reassures me that a personalized approach is important within clinical context and indiscriminate use of fluids is not necessary. Outstanding. Things to add on top of that, Dr. W. Yeah. So John, I love what you said. And I'm a big fan of the utility of ultrasound at the bedside to help us with maybe some dynamic measures of either IVC or passive leg raise to assess the need for fluid responsiveness. But most importantly, this is an ICU study. It is not an emergency department study. So they're already in the ICU there go, you have to make some assumption that some fluid resuscitation has been ongoing before they got to you. This is not play out in the emergency department patient who's fresh to us, and we really don't know how much fluid they've gotten or what their fluid status is, making it that much more important for us to do an assessment of dynamic measures to give us our best guess at assuring that our patients don't collapse when we institute positive pressure ventilation, and agents that may cause vasodilation. My thoughts on the study. Again, study design, awesome. Great information about ICU patients. Not so much great information on my fresh ED patient that I don't have as much information on. I think you both make excellent points, especially to that end, Peter, that we are in the ED resuscitating patients at a different stage of their illness. And they are, in some cases, at higher risk for peri-intubation, cardio issues, cardiovascular collapse, post-intubation, cardiac arrest. And I'll be honest, you know, while in many cases, certainly give some fluid because the patient needs it, but often I will routinely have vasopressors and other agents in the room as we go into RSI, identify this patient as a high risk with the features we've talked about previously on other podcasts here on CCPEM that identify someone at high risk and have those vasopressor infusions at the ready, if not running in some cases during the course of induction and even laryngoscopy. So outstanding points, gentlemen. Thanks so much for taking us through this article. My thanks to the both of you. We'll look forward to getting Dr. Rodriguez back and our next educational topic here on CCPEM. Once again, this is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. Thanks again for listening to this podcast. We can't wait to talk to you on our next podcast. Bye for now.